Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. I'm going to read to you from Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. But what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? He's asking, what's the point of it all? What's the profit of going through the motions of all these ups and downs of life? And then the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for men than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. It is the gift of God. What has a face and hands but no eyes or mouth? A clock does. What always passes by but never comes back? Or the present. What's always running but never moves? That's time. What flies but has no wings? The Goodyear blimp. (laughs) But also time, you were right. What goes up but never comes down? Your, Your age. You know, as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, we've been asking, along with the preacher, the voice of Ecclesiastes, we've been asking the question, what makes for the good life? And the truth is, for many of us, in our experience under the sun, that's his terminology that he would use of a life lived in the here and now in the present. We live it with the belief that if I only had more time, then I'd feel satisfied with my existence here. Because if I had more time, then all of my questions could be answered. We seem to assume that if I had more time, then each of my passions even could be pursued. If I had more time, even the tension I feel and endure, it could be resolved once and for all. If only I had more time. Remember, though, the preacher is our spokesman and our figurehead who yells back at us because of his own experience. He says, no, you won't. You won't find the good life in just having more time. You won't find the satisfaction that you desire. You see, much like more wisdom brought him more sorrow, more time brings you face to face with more injustice and brokenness in our sin-splintered, broken world. In the march of time, it cannot be stopped. You see, you and I, we can hardly find ourselves in a conversation that doesn't mention the struggle that we have with time. It's me jumping into the line at the grocery store and beginning to talk to the clerk and ask them about how their day is going. And you'll hear them complain as they respond about the slow pace of the day that's causing their time at work to drag on. Time is inescapable in almost every conversation. It was me this week at at my kids' end-of-the-year school gatherings and hearing the parents say over and over again, where did the year go? How does time fly so fast? What you really are meant to translate from that is these parents are now frantic, realizing they are now responsible 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the well-being of their own children. It's a little overwhelming, and it feels like it snuck up on all of us. It's when I'm sitting with someone whose heart is heavy and hearing them say, it seems like just yesterday that we were raising our kids, but now they've grown and they're gone. It was like I blinked and it was all over. You see, time for all of us is a crushing reality that constantly marches forward. Our present becomes our past, while we are relentlessly forced to step into the future. 
And all of it seems to happen before we even feel that we get a moment to breathe and enjoy any of it at all. There's a singer-songwriter by the name of John Mayer who used imagery of a locomotive barreling down the track as a metaphor for the march of time in his song, Stop This Train. And I want to quote to you from that song. John sings, Stop This Train. I want to get off and go home again. I can't take the speed it's moving in. I know I can't, but honestly, won't someone stop this train? Don't know how else to say it. I don't want to see my parents go. I'm one generation's length away from fighting my life out on my own. Oh, come on now, stop this train. I just want to get off and go home again. I can't take the speed it's moving in. I know I can't, but honestly, won't someone stop this train? I'm so scared of getting older. I'm only good at being young. So I play the numbers game to find a way to say my life has just begun. I had a talk with my old man and said to him, help me understand. He said, turn 68 and you'll renegotiate. Don't stop this train. Don't for a minute change the place that you're in. And don't think that I couldn't ever understand. I've tried my hand. It's his dad telling him, I tried to slow it down too and I couldn't. But then his dad says, but John honestly will never stop this train. And John sings, he says, oh, now once in a while when it's good, it'll feel like it should. And they're all still around and you're safe and you're sound and you don't miss a thing till you find yourself crying when you're driving away in the dark. Oh, stop this train. I just want to get off and go home again. I can't take the speed this thing is moving in. I know I can't because now I see I'm never going to stop this train. You see, all of us are on that same train called time with him. And for all of us, we'd all admit it moves faster than we'd like, and it often takes turns and moves us into experiences that we'd never have chosen for ourselves. And the truth is, when it comes to riding on the locomotive of time, we can pull the cord to blow the horn as a sign and demonstration of our disapproval, but that's about all we can do, because we can do nothing to slow its pace or to control its destination that it's taking it to. And its destination for all of us, the grim reality is, it's a grave. But be sure of this, the poem that we read from Ecclesiastes 3, it's not prescriptive describing all that you should do in life. It is descriptive of all of the unavoidable experiences that life throws at us. He summarizes the whole of the human experience, all of the highs and the lows here. Talking about how for all of us, we'll have times of rejoicing and yet also times of mourning. There'll be times to, to find ourselves building and other times tearing down. There will be new life and there will be decaying. There will be love and there will be hate. There will be peace and there will be war. There will be birth and there will be burial. He's saying that history has all, but he's also saying that so will we. It's not just the annals of history that show us that this is our life experience. It's that for each of us individually, this is what we'll see in our own sin-splintered, broken world, in our own life and experience. You see, the song that sings this is much older than the birds, 1965 hit, Turn, 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 that you just heard played a few minutes ago, that was called the Song of the Decade because it gave language to hearts all around the world that longed for peace amidst the woes of the Vietnam War. You see, humanity long before that has been reciting this soul in tune in their hearts even before Koheleth would put language to the groanings of the human heart all of us, all of humanity has always been singing a soul in so sad tune about the tyranny of time because all of us are trying to find a way off of this train. You see, in the ground that we'll cover today, we'll find that the preacher here, he's going to vacillate between different worldviews as he grapples with the march of time. The brutal trial of injustice, or excuse me, the brutal trail of injustice that it then leaves in its wake. Like a, a one-man band who's playing all the different instruments to make it all work together. Or like a one-woman show where she's the only actress in it, but a costume change here and a mask worn there allows her to play all of these different roles throughout the play. The preacher is going to vacillate from a secularist who sees the mindless universe as being at the helm of all the chaos of life to then an agnostic who speculates that God could be present, but clearly he isn't really engaged in the human experience or existence. But then you'll even find that he'll step into the role of the believer, someone who believes in a just God who will bring judgment and justice in the future. 
And as we read his words, we will feel the desperation in his tone. We feel really the desperation that's deep-seated in the soil of his soul because it echoes into our own experience, our own relationship with time. See, the poem we began our morning by reading together, although when put to some folk music, it can sound pleasant and even promising, it's really not the point nor the vibe that the poet is expressing here. Again, look at verse 9, where he ends the poem and then asks the question, what profit has the worker from all in which he labors? He's asking, what's the point of it all? Like if we go through all of the rhythms of time and the, the, the highs and the lows, what's the point of it? What does it profit, about, profit us? What's the point of it all if there is no progress? He's saying it's always been this way throughout all of time in history, and we haven't changed it yet. And here, 2,500 years plus later, we'd echo the same sentiment. We still haven't changed. I mean, we've advanced in so many areas as a society and as, as people and movements around the world. However, the human existence and experience is still the same. It's just the same broken cycle, generation after generation, century after century, all throughout human history. It's birth and death. It's plucking and planting, killing and mending, breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, love and war. What profit, though, is there? What's even gain? Where's the progress, he's asking. It leaves us questioning, if there's no progress, then is there no purpose in life under the sun? Especially when your own life and experience in all of human history demonstrates that there's no justice, which is the trail that the preacher will lead us along. In fact, look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. He's telling you that he looked at the oppression and injustice in the world and that it was really too much for him to take in. And then Koheleth, he gets pretty dark here, where you look at the beginning of chapter 4. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that's done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed. But they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there's power. But they, the oppressed, have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who's never existed who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. In our life lived under the sun, time serves as this constant reminder that we're not in control and that we are not its master. We are the slave, the subservient of time, forced to live under its evil reign of tyranny. But the amazing thing in what he says here in chapter 3 about time is that the preacher is sprinkling in beautiful little gospel seeds throughout his thinking about time and the bleak monologue he has here about our human existence and experience. It's verse 11 in chapter 3 where he says that he, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, God has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You see, the preacher here, he possesses a hope that God will make everything beautiful in its time. And then he makes a statement that many of us have probably quoted from or heard quoted from as a positive thing. But he's really pointing out the frustration and hopelessness of human existence in that our hearts yearn for a life beyond this life in our sin-splintered, broken world. He's placed eternity in our hearts. There's a craving in each of us for freedom from the injustice and brokenness of this life, and yet we can't find any real certainty about it, he says, because we can't figure out what God is up to, or in his words, we don't know what he's doing from beginning to end. This is what's beautiful. Please hear me. Jesus's voice, though, echoes for us, yes, a couple of thousands of years after the writer of Ecclesiastes, but Jesus's voice echoes for us and we hear him saying in the very last chapter of the book, in Revelation 22, he said, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Remember what he said, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Remember, this was the enigma that, that the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, well, we want to live forever. We long for eternity, but none of us can know the beginning from the end. None of us can know what God is really up to because we cannot grasp 
what he's thinking from beginning to end. Jesus shows up and says, and here I am. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The enigma that could not be known because of Jesus is now clearly seen and known in Jesus. You see, my goal today is to encourage you, not to discourage you. And what I want to do is tell you that Jesus changes everything. We can possess a hope that God will make everything beautiful in its time because of Jesus. We can live present, freed from guilt and anxiety because of Jesus. We have an answer for injustice, and it's Jesus's future judgment. We have a remedy for death itself, and it's found in the resurrection of Jesus. So for the next few minutes, what we'll do before we take time to approach uh, the Lord's table and partake of the bread and the cup together as we celebrate communion, I want to talk to you about our relationship with time in light of the beginning and the end being seen and known in Jesus. And so I want to talk to you about three areas that Koheleth, the preacher, is making us look at in regard to time. The first is our personal life, that we struggle to enjoy the present moment. And, and let's look at what Jesus does to change that. So our personal life, but then a second thing is our social experience, a social experience that's marred by injustice. But let's talk about how Jesus changes that. But then the third and final thing is our collective end of death and a grave as we wrap up partaking of the bread and the cup together. And I want you to see this morning how Jesus dramatically transforms that, well, really all three of these things. The enigma that couldn't be known is made known to us in Jesus, and it answers the tension that we feel in life in a broken world. You see, when it comes to our relationship with time, let's begin by discussing the first thing, and that's our personal life. That in our personal life, we're struggling to enjoy the present moment. It's the famed founder of the Beatles, John Lennon, who said that life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. In the voice of Ecclesiastes, he wouldn't disagree with that statement. As he poetically describes the up and down rhythmic nature of the highs and lows of the human experience, making it clear that they continue to happen whether you or I like them or not. They're inescapable realities of a life lived in the sin-splintered, broken world, of a life lived under the sun. You see, human history makes it clear that we are not the first nor the only people who struggle through life facing all of these broken experiences. And that as we look forward toward the horizon of our own life and future, we can't help but feel our own bodies tense up as we brace at times for impact. But is there another way to live life under the sun than to look at the past with remorse and towards the future with fear? You see, because when it comes to our relationship with time, the past can't be changed. We know this, nor can, we've learned it, the future be controlled. But for many of us, our present is lived not under the joy of the sunshine, but our present is lived under the gloomy gray cloud of our past regrets and the guilt that it produces in our lives, and our great fear of an unknown future and all of the anxiety that is often fear's companion. Stated simply, most of us are living with regret and guilt over the past, and then with fear and anxiety over the future that keeps us from the ability to ever really even enjoy the present with any lasting satisfaction. It's something I was reading this last week uh, by Henry Nouwen that he just put so beautifully, so eloquently that I want to quote to you from his book, Here and Now. He said, the real enemies of our life are the oughts and the ifs. They pull us backward into the unalterable past and forward into the unpredictable future. But real life takes place in the here and now. Nouwen explains it this way. He says that guilt that says you ought to have done something other than you did. You ought to have said something other than you said. These oughts keep us feeling guilty about the past and prevent us from being fully present to the moment. Worse, however, than the guilt are our worries. Our worries fill our lives with what ifs. What if I lose my job? What if my father dies? What if there's not enough money? What if the economy goes down? What if a war breaks out? These many ifs can so fill our mind that we become blind to the flowers in the garden and to the smiling children on the streets or deaf to the grateful voice of a friend. This is why the real enemies of our life are the oughts and the ifs. And that's why Jesus came to wipe away the burden of the past 
and the, the worries of the future. He wants us to discover God right where we are here and now and to enjoy him in the here and now. You see, this is where the, the preacher, Jesus, the preaching king from the line of David in the future, he speaks to us and dramatically shifts our experience with the past. Think about this. With the past that cannot be changed and produces so much regret and guilt, it's stripped of its power by Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have forgiveness for our past, which frees us from our regrets and therefore erodes the very foundation that our guilt is built upon. And he takes it even further providing than just providing that kind of freedom. He also sovereignly, masterfully redeems and reshapes even the worst of our mistakes. As the scripture promises that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Or as the preacher says here in verse 14, that he makes everything beautiful in its time. One commentator, he eloquently put it, God is not just the all-powerful judge of history, but he is the loving and wise weaver of history, making things beautiful in their time. You see, Jesus changes our relationship with our past. He, he frees us from our destructive nature. It no longer destroys my relationship with God, nor my relationship with myself, my own self-view. My own feeling stuck or hamstrung by my past is broken. I'm freed from that by being connected to Jesus. Do you see that the past that, that couldn't be changed and that produces so much regret and guilt in so many, so many of us that it's stripped of its power by Jesus and what he chose to do on a cross and by emerging from an empty tomb. But do you also understand the future that, that for us can't be controlled and that can produce so much fear and anxiety that it too is stripped of its power in our lives by Jesus? Pastor and author Oswald Chambers gave a series of talks through Ecclesiastes while visiting British troops in Egypt during World War I. He would fall ill and die while he was there preaching to those who were seeing firsthand the brokenness of our sin-splintered broken world. He was pleading with them that there is redemption for our fallen world in Jesus. And those messages were then put into book form. And here's what he says about this poem we have before us this morning. He said, in dealing with practical life, we find the fundamental tragedy underlying everything. Fatalism means I am the sport of a force about which I know nothing. Faith is trust in a God whose ways I do not know, but whose character I do know. The biblical point of view is that God is ruling and reigning and his character is holy. As Job said to his friends, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. This is the final heroism of a man's relationship to God. See, Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us that the time on our hands isn't really ours. It's God's time and it's in his hands. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 31, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Again, quoting Chambers, he said, Jesus Christ did not use figurative language in talking about the hereafter. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. And my business, he said, is with the hereafter. Our business is to live a godly life in the present order of things and not to push out beyond the durations God has placed as our limits. Hey, please hear me say, our past that can't be changed and produces so much regret and guilt in our life is stripped of its power because of the cross of Jesus. And our future that, that can't be controlled and has a tendency to create in some of us so much fear and anxiety is stripped of its power by Jesus. And please hear me, I'm not wanting to sound unsympathetic and to minimize your fears or, or to demonize your anxiety. I'm not wanting to do that at all. I don't want to wound you with what I'm about to say especially if you're a person who suffers from clinical depression or anxiety even. Hear me say that the scripture does not instruct us to feel different than those emotions. It tells us, however, to think different about life in our sin-splintered broken world. The scriptures don't tell us to feel different. It tells us to think different. You see, neither Jesus' comment in the Sermon on the Mount nor Paul's comment in Philippians tell you not to be anxious and to feel something in place of the anxiety. They don't do that. They give instruction on what to do with anxiety, how to respond to it. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, what you do when you're anxious is that you look at God's creation. You look at his attention to detail, his care for it, his power to sustain it. 
And then you ask yourself the question Jesus asked. Well, doesn't God care more for you than all that you see him care for around you? Because you were made in his image. Paul said when you are anxious, he didn't say feel something else. He said be anxious for nothing and do what? He said stop and pray and give thanks. Anxiety has a way of tempting us to look at our reality void of God's presence and care, or at the very least questioning if he's there or if he cares. So scripture instructs us then to stop and to look around at creation and to pray and give thanks to a good God. It's meant to reframe our view of reality to include now a loving, attentive, powerful God. It does not give us instructions like a, a medical physician, like, hey, take two of these a day and, and then, you know, all your anxiety goes away. It's not, it's not what the instruction of scripture is. This is our measured, intentional response to choose to think this way when we are overwhelmed by emotions and fear and anxiety. We need to learn to have our worries, our fears, even our depression and anxiety drive us to God, which means that I personally have to choose to respond in such a way that it can be a tool for God to use to build me rather than a weapon that I find destroys me. I've been reading this book over the last couple of weeks called Leadership Pain. And this week I was so encouraged by something that was written about the anxiety and insomnia that a specific leader was dealing with. You see, as he writes, he starts to compare it to the body's reaction for, in his case, the anxiety and insomnia. He compares it to a body's reaction after a few reps of lifting 250 pounds. Now, most of us know what that's like and do it on the daily, so we understand. But no, if you've ever seen someone lifting a lot of weights and doing several reps, sometimes when they put the weight down, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but their body will shake and tremble. It doesn't mean that they don't have faith that their body's reacting and shaking and trembling. It's that their body's responding to carrying a heavy load. And as it responds, the reaction that your body has is something that you're not necessarily in control of, but that your body is doing on its own. It made me think of the Apostle Paul, who, yes, would write to tell us to be anxious for nothing in Philippians 4, but he would also divulge his own insomnia and anxiety he carried because he was so burdened for the church in what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's Jesus who on the Sermon of the Mount would say, don't worry about your life. And yet Jesus would be found collapsed on the floors of Gethsemane's garden as the shadow of the cross began to loom over him, and he began to sweat great drops of blood from what we best understand to be a medical condition called hematidosis that is onset by an extreme spike in stress and adrenaline. Think about my own body responding as it has in the past with clinical depression to life circumstances, or it, as it still does at times, it responds and reacts with anxiety. I, I can wake up in the middle of the night where I feel like I'm laying in a pool of water, and it's not because it's warm, but it's because I'm anxious, and I'm wired uh, and wound up too tight. Uh, it's even for me, since uh, stepping into this role, I found that I apparently get migraines and never did before, but they're the ones that affect your vision, and it's because I'm carrying stress and not carrying it very well. It's not a lapse in my faith that my body reacts in these ways, though. However, these do create opportunities for me to choose faith just as they created opportunities for Paul and Jesus to choose faith when their bodies reacted and showed signs of great duress and distress. You see, when my body reacts to carrying a heavy load, it drives me back to Jesus again and again to cast my cares on him, knowing that he cares about what happens to me. And often, quite often, I find some form of relief as I release those things back to him, the one that holds my times in his hand. You see, hear me say the scripture do not instruct us to feel different. It tells us to think different about life in our sin-splintered, broken world. And thinking different is about remembering God's great care for you. It's about remembering the cross, the place that he proved your high value and his deep love for you. Again, quoting Chambers, he said, Jesus Christ taught a reasonable life, life on the basis of faith in God. To be carefully careless, he said about everything except your relationship to God. Don't be disturbed today by thoughts about tomorrow. Leave tomorrow alone and bank in confidence on God's organization of what you do not see. Yesterday is past and there's no road back to it. Tomorrow is not. Live in the immediate present. And yours is the life of a child, the child of God. We're invited to be carefully careless. You see, there's three areas that he brings up 
that he points us to here in this passage about our relationship with time. And the first is our personal life, that we struggle, so struggle to enjoy the present moment because of the past and the future. But oh, the cross can free us to do it. But the second thing is our social experience in our broken existence is marred by injustice. You see, this is our experience on a global scale that we are faced with injustice and on a local personal scale. You see, on a global scale, it's what Koheleth describes here when he looks outside of himself to those in power, to the social structures around him. And what he finds, he says, is injustice and oppression. And it leaves him with great despair. In fact, look in your Bible at chapter 3, verse 16. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like the animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. Remember, this is, it's all an enigma. It's all a puff of smoke here in an instant, gone in the next. But like a puff of smoke, it's there, it's presence, but there's no substance to it. I can't be grasped. You see, and I'm thinking about all of these things, and it's vanity. I can't grasp it. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all will return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So I perceive that nothing is better than a man should rejoice in his works, for that is his heritage. For who can even bring him to see what will happen after him? Did you catch how he finishes here? He's saying, we're not really any different from the chaos of the animal kingdom. We may think ourselves to be civilized and ordered, but those in power, he's pointing out, they abuse it. They're like an apex predator devouring the weak all around us. And all of us, all of us will die and decompose just like the carcass of an animal on a vacant hillside. But then he asks, how can we know that the human existence and experience continues on after decay and death? And the answer to that question comes from Jesus, the future preacher king from the line of David, who arrives to answer this very question when he rises from the dead and becomes our living hope. Where he says, how could anyone know if we're any different or if we have a different fate than, than just the animal that's dead and decomposing? Jesus proves that there's life after the grave. See, it's not just a global experience, though. It's it's our experience marred by injustice. One commentator wrote, one of the great stirring truths of the Bible is that the man who looks for justice from others is a fool. Never waste your time looking for justice. If you do, you will soon put yourself in bandages and give way to self-pity. Our business is to see to it that no one suffers from our injustice. Remember, this is a global scale, but this is a personal level. On a personal level, our experience is marred by injustice. We can feel as though we suffer through an unjust existence with chaos at the helm of our life. We feel it when we're, we're passed over for some promotion at work because of a dishonest coworker who took credit for work that was not their own. We endure financial loss and hardship because of bad business practices by rich bank executives. We, we face it when we pray through stretches, maybe even of infertility or, or of unhealth, and then we watch headlines about children who are discarded by drug-addicted parents. We feel the tension of injustice when we find ourselves renting in a neighborhood while they own that one in that other neighborhood, when we struggle to pay our bills while we watch as the rich find loopholes to keep them from paying taxes at all, when we hold the hand of a loved one in a hospital room while we see the city lights flickering through the window at the signs of life and of joy and of partying happening at the same time that you're grieving. We can feel as though we suffer through an unjust existence while chaos is at the helm of our existence. And I don't want to be too impersonal when discussing this because we've had to wrestle with this injustice and these questions the disappointments and dis disillusionment right here in our own church community over the last year. It happened as we watched 
In the same year, two individuals get diagnosed with very similar forms of cancer. And one was declared cancer-free, the other was buried by his family. In the same month, we celebrated two pregnancies. One welcomed a baby while the other suffered a miscarriage. In the stretch of two weeks, two suffered from heart issues. Both received stints and a good report here. One is here and with us, he's well. And the other was embraced by Jesus two weeks ago. You know, a family in our church who, in a two-week span, they will celebrate uh, at the gender reveal party of their grandchild and also will rejoice at the wedding of one of their other children while still in that narrow two-week window of time, will carry the grief of assisting their aging parents into a home where they can receive the kind of care that they now need. This is life. The joys and the sorrows, the births and the deaths, the laughter and the mourning. And it's unavoidable. We can't hide from it. And it can feel like it's without rhyme or reason. So what do we do with unjust and seemingly random suffering that the march of time brings our way. What do we do? We look to Jesus. That's all we have to do. We have nothing else as an option. We look to Jesus. You see, the gospel is the good news about the infinite, timeless God of eternity who stepped into time and life in our sin-splintered, broken world, enduring all that the preacher of Ecclesiastes captures in a snapshot. He endures each high and low of the human experience. God endured every frustration and form of suffering in every season and experience of human life in order to free us from its vanity and tyranny. I love it. As we studied through Galatians, we read this passage often. I'll read it again, though, from Galatians chapter 4, when it says, Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. We are, we are subject to the broken systems of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Hear me say, Jesus came, stepping into time in order to change our experience within it. We have a God who did not sit out of time, detached from our experience. We have a God who stepped into it in order to rescue us from it. And Jesus suffered. Boy, did he suffer. Each of these experiences and his suffering, please hear me, was for a purpose. And so is yours. Please hear me say, Scripture doesn't say that God is the cause of all of our suffering. However, it is perfectly clear in promising that God is more than capable of redeeming and using all of our suffering. Let me remind you today that your suffering, it's not exclusive. Other people and God himself understands and cares and can help. And your suffering, understand and please hear that it's not necessarily discipline. This isn't a sign that God's mad at you or done with you. And your suffering is never without reason. God is able to use what you endure for good. Remember, he brings beauty from ashes. Over our kids' Christmas break in December, uh, we found ourselves, along with thousands of other people, uh, down on Coronado Island. And not far from the Hotel Dell, there's a series of sand dunes that you've probably seen before. Uh, we decided to allow our kids to run along those dunes to burn off some of the energy that they found at the bottom of the ice cream that we purchased them. Foolish, foolish choice, but we allowed them to run around, around along the dunes, uh, you know, trying to wear themselves out basically before the drive home. And while the kids were running, I was just standing watching them because I didn't have the ice cream and so I didn't have the burst of energy. Uh, but as I was standing watching them, a friend of ours, who just also happened to be amongst the other 100,000 people on Coronado Island, spotted us and came over and started chatting and asked if I knew what the dunes were. Because it almost looked like they were these intentionally crafted shapes that our kids were running along. It was then that at his encouragement, I pulled out my phone to see the satellite image of the beach from above. And as many of you know, the very place that I was standing, these malformed dooms spelled out perfectly, Coronado. You know, there's an interesting lesson there. I, I want to tell you that heaven's view of what may feel like my malformed chaotic life is often so different from my own. And that the scriptures are clear that heaven has more 
has more than just a view of my life. Heaven has a God at work in it, shaping and guiding it, making things work together for good as he brings beauty from ashes. And I admit that I often catch myself thinking that, that if I can't see the purpose, if I can't see the shape of this, if I can't make sense of it, if I don't see the purpose of the injustice or of the suffering, then there must not be one. But if we believe in a God who is great enough that we find ourselves having the expectation that he stop all suffering, if we really believe him to be so great and capable that we're even angry with him for not intervening to stop our suffering, then couldn't he also be great enough to have reasons for allowing it that we haven't considered or couldn't understand? You see, Jesus' suffering was for a purpose and so is mine. We suffer and hurt and weep and mourn knowing that God stands with us and cares for us and that God has done something for us to remedy these kinds of moments. It's not just that I'm comforted that God cares. It's that I can mourn and suffer with hope because he came, because he entered into time and experienced the rhythm of its ruthless march. You see, I can question God's care and goodness, his judgment. I can say it's not right. It isn't fair. I can feel frustrated. God, why didn't you fill in the blank, heal them or intervene or help or provide? God provides not the answer to that intellectual dilemma, though. He provides instead the resolution to the problem itself. He doesn't just give us an explanation from heaven. He gave us himself. He came to suffer and die to rid the world of sin, sickness and death once and for all. Hey, we all have these moments, and I'll admit, I do as well. Those moments in time where I don't always feel that God is off the hook for the world's suffering, because it still hurts, and it's hard and disappointing that suffering exists as a part of life and even my own life. But it's in those moments that I have to remind myself that God put himself onto the hook for the world's suffering. He didn't have to, but he did it anyway. He suffered to save me from my sin and to end all suffering once and for all. Our question should not be, God, how could you allow this injustice and pain to crash into my life? Asking, why do you let this happen? When we should instead be asking, why did you let this happen to your son? Because there's only one who suffered, truly suffered unjustly, and it was Jesus. There's only been one who was perfect and blameless, and it was him. There's only been one who did not contribute to the suffering and injustice of our broken world. There's only one, and he suffered willingly as our substitute. I ask, why do you let this happen to me? When we should be asking, why did you let it happen to you? Why would you do this for us? You see, I've learned over time, Christianity does not explain or give the reason for each individual experience of pain. My Christian faith, though, does provide a promise for me that God will redeem it and can use it for good. And it also provides the resources that help me and comfort me in the process. And it provides and presents, it proves, Christianity proves, God's great care and plan to end all suffering. It's a cross and an empty tomb. See, although my choice to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, does not give me an explanation for why every time that I suffer, it does, however, tell me every time what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. Because God cared so deeply about my misery and suffering that he was willing to take it upon himself. You know, in my home office, I could show you a mini art collection of all my children's art. I'm, a, I'm an art collector, you could say, of Riley Keegan and Declan's finest works, and I'm assuming that that has already popped up over my head. Or no, it hasn't, just you wait. As you've guessed, though, it's, I do not collect and cherish their artwork because their art is good. It's not. In fact, here's a picture Keegan drew of me just a couple of years ago at the end of the school year. I found it this week in, or this last week in my office. It was Keegan drawing, writing out, when I grow up, I want to be a pastor. And if you're wondering who the handsome individual there is, that would be yours truly. I appreciate that. 
I want you to know I don't collect or value my kids' art because it's good. I collect and value and treasure it because my children, whom I love, spent their time making it for me. When I look at their little mini masterpieces, I feel special. Like, I feel really loved, except this one was kind of offensive. (laughs) No, they're beautiful, and they're so good for my heart, knowing that my kids took the time to make that for me, that they wanted me to feel this way. They wanted me to know that I'm loved. My friends, if that's how I feel when I look at the six-minute mini art project that Keegan made for me, then what should I feel and experience when I consider the eternal God of the universe stepped into time and the human experience to purposefully live and endure all of its hardship, even suffering and dying, bloodied and naked on a cross so that I could be reconciled and feel the embrace of God again? How should I feel when that is how Jesus spent his time? That is how Jesus gave his time and his life for me. Shouldn't it move us? Shouldn't it settle us? You know, there's one last area, and Casey, you can come on up and we'll transition to communion here. But there's one last area that Koheleth does turn our attention to, and that's our collective end when it comes to time. Death in a grave. You see, the harsh reality is that birth begins the journey towards death for all of us. And humor me, please. I've always looked forward to this moment where I could use this and get the same affirming chuckle that many preachers have been given for generations. When people like me, they comment and say the the very witty and deep comments that the the unwavering statistic of 10 out of 10 will die. Thanks for the condescending laugh. No, the truth is we all are terminal. What are our options if we want to be freed from Father Time's tyranny, though? We can sing the song on repeat, Forever Young. I want to be forever young. I looked online this week. What, what do we do to beat Father Time's tyranny? The American Academy of Dermatology suggests we'll just avoid rep, uh, repetitive facial expressions because then your face will age a lot slower. The Farmer's Almanac, it prescribes to never mock an owl if you want to beat death because if you mock an owl, bad things are headed your way. It was actress Demi Moore that it came out that she's been reportedly using leeches to keep her face and skin looking so young and so good. So there's a helpful tip and pointer. Or you could take the blood and plasma injections from your children like the 45-year-old biotech mogul named Brian Johnson does. The man is worth a reported half a billion dollars and claims to spend over two million every year fighting father time. This was his most recent addition to his strict regimented life. It's the injection of his 17-year-old son's blood into his system, which is in addition to the dozens of supplements he takes, the seven skin creams he applies each morning, the monthly colonoscopy he endures, his robotic adherence to an 8.30 p.m. bedtime, and the precise 1,977 calories he eats each day via his strict vegan diet. One article I read about him concluded with this statement. His lifestyle, and I quote, and the obsessive commitment to trying to determine the effects of time have garnered significant criticism, with some medical experts saying this is just a manifestation of his anxiety around mortality. You think? What do we do? What are our options if we want to be freed from Father Time's tyranny and from the looming reality of death in a grave? We look it square in the eyes and we remind it that it was conquered when Jesus reopened the grave after it had swallowed him up. You see, death is no longer the victory nor our enemy. Death was the byproduct of the fall. It's the fruit of sin's introduction into creation and into our bodies. But Christ reversed that curse by suffering in our place as a perfect substitute and sacrifice. And he proved that his sacrifice was acceptable to God when he rose from the grave, proving that we're freed from the tyranny of time and death. Our mortality no longer has to leave us shaken and undone because Jesus is as Peter wrote, our living hope. See, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Oh, but we have seen and heard and known the one who is the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know whatever God does, it shall be for other, forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. When God took on flesh and dwelt among us, the timeless eternal God subjected himself to time and the injustice that its march brings into our lives. And we now see that he is, according to Revelation 13, the lamb slayed before the foundation of the world. It's true that what God does lasts forever from eternity in our past to eternity in our future. The lamb slain. Jesus is the eternal work of God that the preacher of Ecclesiastes longed to see. It's in verse 15 where he says, that which has already been and that which is to be has already been and God requires an account of what is past. The second half of that verse, that statement, and God requires an account of what is past, it has a variety of translations because it's just three Hebrew words put together that leave people confused. It's just a word for God, a word meaning seek and a word meaning chasing after. And the rest of scripture makes it clear to us that we can't escape the judgment of God. So some translate it, as my New King James Bible does, as referencing the inescapable judgment day that's coming. While other Bible translators just look at what's said there and not the whole counsel of God and say, well, what is it saying here, though? It's saying that God seeks what was driven away. That this was what the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God seeks what has been driven away. God's seeking what needs chasing. My friends, that's the gospel right there. Man broke the good thing God created, and God promised in that moment in the garden to remedy what we've done wrong, even at great expense to himself. That is the gospel. And so, Jesus, we look your direction to give you thanks that you change our past, you change our present, and you change our future. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.